Taking your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. We will read the first eight verses of that chapter in our continuation in reading and preaching through the book of Acts, also known as the Acts of the Apostles, also known as the Acts of the Risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And as we finished Acts chapter 7 last Sunday, we saw Stephen, one of the first, the first deacons of the church, put to death by stoning for declaring publicly the dominion of Jesus Christ, that Christ was at the throne of God in heaven, meaning that Jesus was the one authority over all the authorities of the earth, including the church in Jerusalem. That was a scandal for the Jews who heard it, and they took up stones and silenced him. Beloved, let us pray and then read. Gracious God, help us, we pray now, in the hearing of your word being read. We ask, Father, we would understand it. We ask that we would believe it. We ask that we would be reformed by it. May your Holy Spirit be the grace and strength of this hearing, believing, and reforming. May the glory of your name be the purpose and end. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is God's word. Much joy in Samaria, of all places. Beloved, the great joy alive in the soul of the Christian is the joy of having been liberated from the tyranny and the dominion of the devil. You are seeing it right here in verse 8. It was not a joy that the Christian was seeking. In fact, we didn't even think such a joy was possible because we did not even know that we were enslaved until Christ came to us and liberated us to serve him, to serve him in the truth, in righteousness, in wisdom. Listen to how Jesus describes his ministry of liberation when he later sends this same Saul to be an evangelist. Jesus says, Acts 26, 18, 
I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The power of the gospel is a liberating power. It breaks the power of Satan over the souls of sinful, unbelieving, wicked men. That's what it has done in your life. It is a liberating power, and the joy of this liberation is the joy described in verse 8 of our passage today. Now, the scripture says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Did you know that? That's 1 John five nineteen. The whole world is bound, enslaved, subjugated, imprisoned, ruled by the evil one, the devil. This is why so many people cannot abide in the teaching of Jesus Christ. This is why so many cannot fully agree and confidently rest in every single doctrine that Jesus taught. This is why so many cannot come to him. It's not just that they will not. They cannot because they are under the power of the evil one. They think they are free in their wanderings, but they are enslaved to the devil through sin, just as we once were ourselves. They do not want to come to Christ, but understand, neither can they come to Christ. Satan binds them and blinds them. But here's the wonderful news. Christ has come to the Christian who was once among this very lot. The Christian has been liberated, and the Christian knows he has been liberated. The Christian experiences this liberation, confidently now surrendering their body, their mind, their will, to the truth, to the wisdom, to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Christian is liberated into joy. Because in Christ, the biggest questions of life are now settled, aren't they? In Christ, the biggest fears of life are resolved. In Christ, the biggest needs of life have been secured. This is the joy of the Christian. There are no spirits or gods or demons that they have to pay off with fruits or vegetables or their firstborn child. Christ is their all in all, and he is the joy of their soul. So look at verse 8 again. The joy of verse 8 that is poured out into the souls of these men and women of Samaria was not one of those cheap joys that people mistakenly call their greatest joy in life. This joy is not one of those. The joy of verse 8 was not the cheap joy of fewer problems in life. The joy of verse 8 was not the cheap joy of more money. The joy of verse 8 was not even the cheap joy of political liberation or the cheap joy of some upwardly mobile lifestyle improvement. That is not the joy of verse 8. All of those joys can be had that I just described without the blood of Christ, without the cross of Christ, without the resurrection of Christ, 
without the Spirit of Christ, without faith in Christ. You can have all those other joys. Those are real joys, but they are cheap and brief compared to the joy of verse 8. The joy of verse 8 is a joy which rises and ripens even during persecution. That's, that's the context of that joy. The joy of verse 8 rises and ripens even while Christians are scattering with their bags in their hands and all their earthly belongings. That's the context of this joy. The joy of verse 8 rises and ripens even as Saul, like an assassin, is going around and ravaging the church. The joy of verse 8 is a joy which remains even as Satan more fiercely rages in his resentment at having lost some of his prey to the liberating power of King Jesus Christ. So this is what we should understand about the first eight verses of this chapter. In these verses, Luke describes two things simultaneously. He describes the tightening rage of the devil and the liberating grace of the risen Christ. As the devil tightens his rage against the church, Christ is easily liberating many souls out from under the devil's tyranny. So look first with me at part one of that, the devil's tightening rage. We're told in verse one that a great persecution arose against the church of Jerusalem. This is the devil's persecution. This is the devil's rage. What kicked it off was the execution of Stephen, who was stoned to death for preaching that the dominion of Jesus Christ had begun. Do you remember what Stephen said right before the mob went ballistic? He said at the end of chapter 7, Behold, meaning everybody look. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was not only telling us what he saw, he was confessing the deity of Jesus Christ. And he was declaring that since all authority belongs to Christ, that his fellow Jews can only be reconciled to God through Christ. They killed him for saying it. But it stirred up the devil even more. Why? Because the devil, if you didn't know, is a ravenous, resentful, roaring lion. Whenever the souls of men are taken away from him, he rages more fiercely on the earth. This is vividly explained in Revelation chapter 12. You're welcome to peek there if you like. The Apostle John in Revelation 12 is describing the same events that are happening in Acts chapter 8. The Apostle John describes from a different angle the exact same thing Stephen saw. The crucified Christ, exalted to the throne of heaven, exercising his dominion over the souls of men once ruled 
by Satan. So John says in Revelation 12:5 that Christ was caught up to God and his throne. But then in verse 9 of Revelation 12, John says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. Then John says, Revelation 12, 11, that by the blood of the lamb, many souls have conquered the devil. What a great statement. By suffering of the suffering one, they have conquered the devil. The blood dominion of Christ is defeating the dominion of the devil. Now, John is quick to add in verse 12 of chapter 12, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. John then in 12.13 describes how the devil drives the church into the wilderness, but he cannot defeat her. Then John says in 12.15, the devil tries to sweep the church away with a flood of water, but he fails. Then John says in 12.17 that the devil becomes furious with the church and goes off to make war with her offspring. Everything described in Revelation 12 is unfolding in Acts chapter 8. Saul, at this point, is a servant of this devil. Saul, at this point, is one of the devil's top lieutenants. Saul, at this point, carries the fury and the rage of the devil in his heart, in his theology, in his morality, in his religion. Now, if you were a Jew, Saul would have been a great neighbor because he was as clean as a sepulcher. But if you are a Christian, Paul's true filth would be revealed to you, the filth of the devil. Saul, at this point, is in complete harmony with the dominion of the devil. Saul's religious zeal, Saul's energy, it is the very tip of the sword at this point, which Satan is using to strike against Christ and against his body. I want you to hear how Saul, after his conversion, describes these very days when he was still a servant of Satan. Listen to this. He sounds just like the dragon of Revelation 12. Paul's own description Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That's the dragon of Revelation 12. In Acts 26.9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's the bio of the dragon. And then he says in Acts 22.4, 
I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Beloved, Satan tightens his rage against the church whenever and wherever he is losing the souls of men to the dominion of Christ. Has Satan lost dominion of your soul? If he has, you've made him mad. But who cares? Keep listening. He is no equal to the dominion who now has captivated your soul. Listen, wherever souls of men are lost from the dominion of Satan and gained to the dominion of Christ, Satan gets hot and red in the neck and rages in resentment. And this is why healthy churches will have conflicts. Dead churches do not. Rainbow flag churches this morning have no conflict among them over the rainbow flag. Satan is not bothered. Healthy churches will have conflicts because Satan rages against them. Healthy Christian homes will have conflict because there are souls being taken captive in those homes by the dominion of Christ. And Satan rages against those families. And even healthy Christian believers will have conflict in their soul, privately, secretly, deeply, because as they are keeping the faith and fighting against sin, Satan rages against them. He is very, very jealous for his own dominion. The only dominion which can break into Satan's dominion and take captive the souls who had once been captive to Satan is the dominion of Jesus Christ. Wherever the dominion of Christ is saving sinners from the curse of their sins and subduing sinners to the obedience of faith, Satan will be near, raging, roaring. And so the scripture says, Give no opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4, 27, because the devil is nearby seeking opportunity. Scripture also says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because the devil is nearby with his schemes. Scripture also says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. The devil's hungry to recover his dominion. John Calvin was quite right when he said, Satan has undisputed possession of this world until he is dispossessed by Christ. Satan himself almost told the truth about this, almost, when he tempted Christ in the wilderness. He showed Christ all the kingdoms of the earth, and then he said to the Savior, 
To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Satan said that. Luke 4, 6. He was right about his possession of the world. It had been given to him. But he lied, even in those words, about his authority over his possession. You see, Satan is no sovereign who can do as he wills. He is a servant, a servant of God, even in his thoroughgoing wickedness, is Satan. How does his wickedness serve God? Because since man abandoned the image of God for the image of the devil, God turned sinful man over to the devil, making Satan a servant of God's divine vengeance against sinful and wicked men. He is such until he is not. He is such until Christ, by mercy, comes and takes souls from the devil to himself. You see, our, our functional theology in the West, in America, the functional Christian theology is that I can get anybody to believe the gospel if I present it in the right way. If I add electricity to it and I give away jars of jelly or coupons to the fast food restaurant up the street, I can get anyone to believe the gospel if I just keep tweaking it to keep up with the times of how people hear That is the functional theology of the West. It is not the theology of Scripture. The theology of Scripture, beloved, is that unbelievers are under the rule and reign of Satan, and no one can bring them out of it except Jesus Christ. And he must be willing. Jesus Christ must himself be willing or else men will remain under the rule of the devil. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they do not believe the gospel. Why does Paul say that to the church at Corinth? So that they would not be discouraged when they see their husbands not believing the gospel that they would not be discouraged when they see their wives not believing the gospel, where they would not be discouraged when they see their children not believing the gospel, their neighbors, their top men in the city. They would not think that unbelief proves that Christ is not powerful. Christ is leaving them in the hands of the avenger, the wicked avenger, Jesus Christ, until the day that he is pleased to save them, the day that he hears their cries for mercy, until the day he hears the cries of some intercessor praying for their mercy according to his purpose in election. Beloved, we have to straighten our theology so that we ourselves do not quit the faith. I have met many people who have apostatized on this very issue. They became scandalized when people that they truly loved, that they truly thought were Christians even, apostatized before them and stopped believing the gospel. And they started to think that the whole thing must be about the weakness 
of this man, Jesus, not his dominion, that he can't even keep his own. Beloved, it is not true. The Lord, in his great mysterious wisdom, leaves men in the hands of the devil until that day that he is willing to bring them out. Men cannot bring themselves out. We preach the gospel just like these Christians did as they were scattered. They kept preaching the word. The word itself is the power of God unto salvation. Those whom God has given ears to hear it will hear it, and they will be saved. They will be taken captive from the captor. Now, like I said, Satan was right about his possession of the world, but he lied about his authority over it. He is a servant, not a sovereign. Until Christ comes by mercy and takes souls from the devil to himself, we have no exercise of true gracious sovereignty in the soul of man. It doesn't even begin in man. It begins in Christ. And beloved, that is exactly the loud screeching that you're hearing coming out of Samaria as Luke reports in verse 7. Do you hear the screeching? The dominion of Jesus Christ is coming and stealing souls of men. Verse 7, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Do you see what is happening there in Samaria? The gates of hell are not prevailing against the advance of Christ's dominion. As the gospel of salvation is preached in Samaria, Christ from heaven is opening the ears and hearts of many to hear the voice of their true master for the first time. They're hearing the highest authority, divine authority, the Lord Jesus. They are hearing him say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. They're hearing him say, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Matthew 9, 2. They're hearing him say, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty nine. They're hearing him say, I am with you always. Matthew 28, 20. He sounds like such a different master than the one they have served these many years. With those words, the sharp two-edged sword from the mouth of Jesus Christ heals the souls of men and drives out the unclean spirits of the devil once and for all. Let me ask you this morning. Do you have an unclean spirit in you? Unclean spirits still take up residence in the sons and daughters of men. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that the spirit of disobedience, the spirit of the ruler of this present age and evil, is at work in the sons of disobedience. 
Beloved, if you do not see the glory of Christ crucified, if you do not abide in the doctrine of Jesus Christ, if you do not confidently rest in all of his teaching, the spirit of the devil is still ruling you. You still need this very ministry of the risen Christ. And today he has sobered you and declare to you that you cannot even come out of it yourself. You are enslaved, imprisoned, subjugated, ruled, and bound. Why is Jesus talking to you about this today? Because it is a day of salvation. It is a day of grace. You see, the way the grace of the risen Christ works is he first tells you the terrible, horrible, bad news. And your name's not even Alexander, who had a terrible, rotten, no good day. You see, the way the grace of Jesus Christ works when he comes to deliver a soul from the unclean spirits of the devil and bring them to Christ is he sobers you of your need and your desperate condition. And then he declares to you that he is the master of love the master of mercy, the master of grace, the master of forgiveness. He is not like the master you have been serving who only takes and takes and lies and lies and kills and kills. Jesus is the master of life, not the master of death and condemnation. When Satan has possession of the wicked, he often oppresses both the body and the spirit. This is why it says in verse 7 that even those who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Jesus Christ in his dominion heals the diseases, the very diseases by which the devil oppressed the bodies of God's children. So in verse 7, what we are witnessing is the whole restoration of those who were once wicked, not good, but wicked when they are now brought under the healing dominion of Christ. Now someone might think that we are missing out on Christ's dominion because our bodies still suffer from illness and failure. But the dominion of Christ does not heal us from all physical diseases in this age. His dominion, however, does heal us. Yes, it does, from every disease Satan would put upon you if you were in Satan's possession. It heals you from those. It keeps those off of you because you are Christ's possession now. Christ's dominion heals us from every disease Satan would put upon us if we were still in Satan's possession. Satan uses diseases to oppress the wicked. Says that in many scriptures. But now that Christ has brought the Christian under his dominion, none of our illness is because we are owned by the devil. All our illnesses now, for those who are in Christ, 
are simply platforms upon which we get to give testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get to testify every time we are sick, every time our body is broken, that our head is already in the heavens with a glorified body, and so shall we be there too. That our sickness, we get to say this right in the face of our friends, right in the face of our doctors, our sickness is not of the devil's possession. Christ will not allow it. In fact, the Apostle John makes this quite clear in John 5.18. 1 John 5.18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the devil, excuse me, and the evil one does not touch him. So whatever is going on in your body, whatever is broken in your mind, whatever it is, it is not because the evil one has possession of you. Christ has possession of you. And it will only turn out to your advantage. Even the worst disease now, for those who have been brought under the dominion of Christ, even the worst disease is simply the sowing of a seed that will bring forth a harvest of righteousness and grace in our lives. So this, beloved, brings us to the end, back to verse 8. In the great joy in Samaria... Do you understand this joy? This is the joy of a people who are no longer oppressed by the devil. Broaden your joy. If your joy has only been the joy of the forgiveness of sins, open the curtains a little wider. You were once children of the devil. You were once under his rule. You could not bring yourself out from it. Christ did it by pouring out upon you the washing power of his spirit, uniting you to his own body, giving you his own kingdom, bringing you under his dominion. There's a great scene in the book Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, who is the pilgrim, on his long, arduous journey to the celestial city, about halfway through, he has to go toe-to-toe with the devil. The devil spots him and says, from where have you come and where are you going? Christian, I have come from that place of all evil, the city of destruction, and I am heading toward the city of Zion, the devil. So from this I conclude that you are one of my subjects, since the whole of that region belongs to me. I am its prince and God. This being true, then how is it that you have run away from your king? Were it not for the fact that my plan is for you to serve me further, I would right now strike you to the ground with one smashing blow. Christian, replies, it is true that I was born in your territories, but your employment was hard and your wages were such that a man could not properly live on since the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I came to adulthood, I did what other thoughtful people ought to do, and that is to seek for better employment. 
the devil. You understand that no prince worthy of the name will easily release his subjects, and to neither will I let you go at this time. But since you have complained of your duties and your salary, let me encourage you to return. I personally promise that every attempt will be made by our government to improve your wages. Liar. Christian, but I have yielded my loyalty to another, even to the king of princes. I cannot possibly return to you. Beloved, here's the joy that belongs to you under the dominion of Christ as you open the curtains wide. When you are hearing the doctrines of Christ, either at the feet of your father in family worship, in Sunday school, in worship, when you're hearing the doctrines of Christ, you should say to yourself, I would never be able to believe these doctrines if I were still under the rule of my former master. When you're loving the believers of Christ in the church, you should say to yourself, I would never be able to love these people if I were still under the rule of my former master. When you are adoring the Savior in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you should say to yourself, I would never be able to adore this Savior if I were still under the rule of my former master. I would never be able to hope in this God if I were still under the rule of my former master. And I would never be able to rejoice in my sufferings, in my sicknesses, in my impoverishments, in my conflicts. I would never be able to rejoice in any of those if I were still under the rule of my old former master, the devil. Beloved, the cause for joy is so near to you every day, isn't it? The dominion of Christ is so near to you every day. It's in the loving of the body of Christ. It's in the hoping of God in face of death. It's in the joy over suffering. May he fill you with this joy. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we confess, O God, that our minds need renewing on this very matter of our own history with the devil. By nature, we were bound to his tyranny and dominion. And it was just of you that we would be. For he is truly the fitting avenger of those who have rebelled and defied you and have turned away from your beloved image. Gracious Lord, we confess that you have done a mighty work that we have not taken ourselves captive to your gospel. You took us captive when we were dead in sins and trespasses, when we were ruled by the Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you opened our prison cell from the outside, or it would never have opened. Lord, we pray that 
indeed, we would meditate upon these things and that we would not be slothful, that we would take full responsibility for the word that we have heard this morning, that we would indeed, Lord, meditate upon this glorious grace and bring ourselves afresh to the joy for all the things that we can believe and hope and love and adore and rest in and rejoice in that would not be possible if the devil was our Lord. And Father, I pray for any in this room who are still bound by the unclean spirit of the devil. Father, I pray that you would come to them. They cannot make themselves ready. They cannot make themselves ripe. They cannot become obviously the clean and the good. Father, I pray that you would come to them in their wickedness, that you, O Lord, would apply to them by your mighty spirit that which Christ has accomplished on the cursed tree. Nail their sins to the cross and let flow upon them the blood of your beloved Son, washing and cleansing them of all unrighteousness, forgiving their sins, uniting them to your risen Son, giving them life by your Spirit. Oh, Lord, I pray that this even very day you would do it to the praise, to the honor, to the glory of the true Lord and King of everlasting dominion, Jesus Christ. Amen.